Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. For the podcast, this is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, today's episode is a tip of the habit to nuns. Yes. We spent a lot of time thinking of yeah. that title. Don't think we, we came didn't. up with lots of nun puns, people. Um, I wanted to ask you if before we get started, if we want to do a little number from the sound of music. By we, do you mean me, Molly? <laughs> I thought that would be lovely. <laughs> um, no. Can you do a few bars of Climb Every Mountain? I don't think you want me to. You hear my voice? I've had a little cold all week. I'm a little scratchy. The nuns will lift you up. You don't, you don't want to scratchy climb every mountain. I don't want to do that disservice to the sound of music. That was how I first came in contact with the idea of nuns. As a very young age, was watching the sound of music, and I was like, man, I understand why Maria didn't want to be a nun, but these ladies are pretty awesome. They yeah. fight Nazis. They sing. They've got. They live in a really nice place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it seemed better than taking care of the seven kids, to be honest. So are you saying that you thought about becoming a nun, Molly? Um, no, because as soon as I think you, you see the sound of music, you see for every sound of music there is, there's like two movies where there's a really mean nun teacher. Oh, yeah. So I feel like those are the two stereotypes that people get is either singing nuns because we've got things like sister act, sound of music. Mm -hmm. And then we've got like the mean nun category where if you want to just stereotype a kind of educator right away. It's a nun with a ruler. Yeah. So this is going to get beyond all those stereotypes to look at the history and daily life of a nun. Yes. And before we get started, maybe it's good to differentiate between nuns and sisters. Right. Because, you know, the terms are used interchangeably a lot in the Catholic community. Mm -hmm. And we should also say we're going to be talking about Catholic nuns. Yes. Because there are other... Uh, both Christian denominations and non-Christian denominations like Buddhism that have religious women that they call nuns. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Catholic Church, there are two groups of religious women who have taken these vows of uh, chastity, obedience, and poverty. Mm-hmm. And the ones who go, who enter a convent never to leave again are considered the real true nuns. And the other ones working in schools and hospitals and other community organizations Those are technically sisters. Yes. And the reason for that divide uh, is explained by their history, and it might also have implications for their future. For their future. This very simple difference between nuns and sisters. So we might use the terms a a little interchangeably during this podcast, but Mm -hmm. that's sort of the the breakdown between the two. And one last point to get really technical. If we use the phrase contemplative nuns, we're talking about those nuns who are living in the the convents outside of uh, mainstream society. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the past, to the very earliest Christian communities where we get the explanation for why nuns used to wear habits or the veils. And uh, these were women who dedicated their lives to emulating Jesus Christ. And they tended to be virgins or widows and call themselves either spouses of Christ or brides of Christ. So they started wearing veils to symbolize this spiritual marriage. Right. To be off limits to the rest of the society. And I think what's kind of interesting is these women kind of popped up on their own. It's not like these early Christian communities said, hey, we need we need like a girls club. You guys yeah. want to be like the, the women of the church. Jesus's brides. It was more these women made their own decision to say, I'm going to set myself apart by wearing this veil um, and I'm going to live like Jesus did in service to the poor. 
living a very strenuous life of prayer and devotion. And I want to be as close to uh, spiritual perfection as I can. So it's not until the fourth century after monks begin living in community with each other that the Brides of Christ follow in suit. And so we start having the um, structures more like the convents that we think of today. And this is also when they begin taking their vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Right. They lived that way before, but that's right. In the fourth century, we've got definitive communities popping up and those specific vows. And often what they would do is the monks would have like one building and then nearby the nuns would have another building and they would but together be a self-sustaining community. They would do their chores. They'd they'd live off the work of those two groups uh, together. And different women would would flock to convents for different reasons. Some by choice. For instance, if they didn't want to get married, they might go to a convent. It was a good option for them at the time. Uh, it was also a convenient escape for battered women and former prostitutes who would have been shunned by society. It was kind of an, a protective space that they could go to. But then a lot of women were also sent there against their will by their parents. For instance, women who might not have been marriageable. Mm -hmm. There's some really interesting statistics from the 4th century on all the way up to, you know, maybe the 18th century where uh, parents, you know, would look at the amount of money they'd have to pay a potential husband in the form of a dowry versus the amount of money they'd have to pay the convent uh, to take on their daughter. And Mm -hmm. it was way cheaper to send your daughter to a convent than to, to arrange a nice marriage for it. And if you think about how large some of these old families were, they would, you know, marry off the best looking daughters. And then the convent would be sort of like the, the runner up for the ones who maybe not didn't win the genetic lottery. Yeah. We, we think a lot about arranged marriages, but parents would actually set up arranged convent (laughs) stays. And, uh, if they promised a young daughter to a convent, she would be known as an oblate Mm -hmm. or promised nun. Yeah. And the nuns would take up her education very early and, and then when she had uh, the age necessary to take the vows, she would have taken the vows. But listen to this little fun fact, too. For women who were there who really desired marriage and um, children, they might be given dolls that looked like Jesus to take care of. I know. They oh, cuddled Jesus our little doll. Jesus dolls. That was the closest they got to motherhood, according to one scholar. Well, they would take care. I should clarify. They would take care of them on certain holy days. They wouldn't just carry around their little Jesus doll baby in their, in their habit. Maybe. There's oh, really no way of knowing. That's true. Records can be kind of sketchy from those early centuries. <laughs> but then something happened in 1298. 1298, a big date for non-history. And that is when Pope Boniface VIII issues a papal bull decreeing that complete enclosure within cloisters was a requirement for all nuns. Now, up until 1298, these communities of monks and nuns could kind of pop up, do what they wanted, and, you know, the Vatican didn't really oversee them too much. Mm -hmm. But uh, in this era, the church is sort of like, whoa, we've got these women living together. We've got uh, some nuns getting pregnant from living so close to these monks and priests. Uh, so they decided to say, you can never leave the walls of your convent again. And there were these even rules to where the windows of a convent could be. You know, the walls couldn't overlook a road that the public might pass on mm-hmm. because they didn't want both the public to see the nuns and the nuns to see the public. And, uh, the language of the, of the papal bull was pretty condescending to women. Yeah. It was like, you know, you, are just temptresses for these priests and these monks. And we have got to put you in closures for your own good. 
And, you know, if that's the only way we're all going to be saved is if you are separate from the rest. And time got even worse for women living in these cloisters with the Protestant Reformation because they were visible symbols of the Catholic Church. And then convents were denounced by Protestants as unclean and unholy places. And then some nuns were even beaten and beheaded because of it. Right. It was a, it was a tough time to be a nun because... These communities that had come up on their own, they may have had the early element of opening a school that the nuns staffed. They may have opened a hospital very early on. And these women who are working so hard in the community suddenly are decreed not legitimate by the Vatican. Mm-hmm. And it was a real uh, trying time where some orders would say, OK, we're, we're not nuns. We're going to say that we aren't nuns so we can continue to do all our community service. Whereas some orders really fought tooth and nail with the Vatican to say, hey, we may teach in schools, but we're still we're still nuns. Yeah. You know, we don't need to be shut off from the world to really live the best spiritual life we can. You know, we think that we're called to be out in the community working with them. And uh, so it was a really trying time. And, you know, I think that researching it now in our present day, Kristen, you can find a lot of sort of feminist scholars who kind of project onto these nuns what they think their lives were like, mm-hmm. uh, especially within the cloisters. They'd say, oh, yeah, these women couldn't leave, but they were still the first feminists because they were writing all these essays and writing these poems. And they were really, you know, creative women who didn't let being enclosed stifle their creativity. And then you've got other scholars saying, oh, no, this was the worst thing ever to happen to women ever. Ever. Well, and it lasted for a long time. It wasn't until 1900 that Pope Leo XIII acknowledged that the active sisters who were living outside of convents would be recognized by the Vatican. So they're kind of reinstated at the beginning of the 20th century. And then with the Vatican II, which convened in 1962, we have a loosening up of life in the convent. So along with that, we have the differentiation between the sisters and the nuns we talked about in the beginning of the podcast. We have the active sisters who are out working in the schools and working in homeless shelters and places like that. And then we have the contemplative nuns who are in the cloisters with their life just dedicated to the convent and to Christ. So if you've ever seen a person you think is a nun out in like a school or community, She's probably a sister. A sister. Yes. Yeah. I will say once, um, and maybe that, I don't know if that reassures me, but once when I was in Italy, Kristen, I went to uh, St. Peter's to see the Pope. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was going to make an appearance and everyone was like, oh, when's he going to come? When's he going to come? And a sister kicked me. Mm-hmm. So I just... You should I, see the look on Molly's face <laughs> right now. Just saying she that... She must have kicked you hard. She did. And I was stunned because I was like, why is this nun, this holy woman... Why did she kick you? Was it just crowded? It was crowded and everyone wanted to see the Pope. Well, you know, sometimes people get a little, but I did not think that just because she took some vows, she had the right to the better spot than I did. And I wish I could have seen you taking on a, (laughs) taking on a sister at the Vatican, Molly. Well, now I just, you know, I'm not saying that they're any less than another, but I just, all these years I've been telling the story of how a nun kicked me, but it was really a sister. Now was the nun wearing a robe and a habit, this nun who kicked you? She was. And I think that's pretty significant because this was 2003. And by this time, many nuns had given up wearing habits. Uh, and many sisters had given up wearing habits because in the 1950s, questions started to rise up about how clean these habits were. Yeah, what was going on underneath those flowing robes? Yeah, Pope Pius XII said basically to the women, you might want to start thinking about, you know, if you're going to be out in the world, why don't you look a little bit more like the communities that you serve? 
which was offensive to some of the nuns because, you know, there was meaning behind every single piece of clothing they put on. Right. It was something that had to do with Christ's life or Christ's sacrifice. So that was kind of offensive. But he was saying, you know, you're spending so much time trying to keep these garments clean. That might be time you could better use praying, working with the community. But things really heat up and the changes really start to happen in 1962 when the Second Vatican Council is called. So with the Vatican II, which was kind of an attempt to open up the Catholic Church a little bit, modernize it, nuns did away with their habits. And one order even consulted Christian Dior about what they should wear next. Yeah, they wanted sort of the modern habit, a designer modern habit. And along with the uh, Vatican II going on, we also have the rise of second wave feminism And with that, we see um, not only maybe more nuns getting out into the community, but also a drop in women choosing to um, go to convents and become sisters and nuns. Right. You talked about, Kristen, how in those early communities, to some women, a nun was a really good alternative to getting married. If you did not want to get married, they would say a, a husband or a veil. And with that rise of second wave feminism and the idea that women didn't have to get married, didn't have to stay home with kids, could could sort of choose their own path, these women started seeing convents as a less appealing choice. So we've got that going on. We've got Catholic families getting a little bit smaller so that, you know, whereas especially after World War II, a Catholic family would usually donate one of their kids to be a priest or a nun. They sort of mark that, that so kid strange. for a religious life. Uh, there were fewer children to do that with. So you wouldn't want to, you know, throw away your chance at grandchildren with, uh, with giving one away to the Catholic church. Goodness. And as a result, in 1965, we have approximately 180,000 sisters in the U.S., uh, by 2009, we got fewer than 60,000, and no big surprise here, the median age for remaining nuns is in the 70s. They are an aging population. But one really interesting thing that, that you found, Molly, while you were researching this article for How Stuff Works on How Nuns Work, was that the younger women who are becoming nuns today are actually more traditional and more fundamental than these older nuns. Yeah, the women who stayed after Vatican II stayed because they had these true callings to live this kind of life. And most of them took on really interesting ministries mm-hmm. um, in the community. And uh, they sometimes have, you know, nine to five careers in addition to uh, living and working at the convent. So, um, yeah, there's it's an aging population that's pretty liberal that they usually tend to have beliefs about whether women should be ordained in the church. And Mm -hmm. I think that as nuns, they should have equal standing with priests. They're also highly educated. 80% of nuns today have master's degrees. Right. And so it's very interesting to these women that the trend, rather than, you know, attracting maybe more women who are in their 50s, say, finishing up one career and getting ready to start another one, that actually what they're attracting these days are 20-somethings who want to wear a veil, whereas most women haven't worn the veil since the 60s who want to live enclosed uh, for larger periods of time than they do. So it's it's kind of interesting. I think it'll be uh, pretty fascinating to see what happens in the next 10 years or so, whether the uh, the liberalism that some of these nuns have adopted remains or if these new traditional women will sort of take the lead in the Catholic Church. And the young women who are receiving the call because mm-hmm. the process of becoming a nun starts with, a call or a message from God that, that a, a woman would receive that she is meant to lead this life. Um, 
it's interesting that they would do this because it's not a light undertaking. It takes a long time to become an actual nun with all of the vows. Mm-hmm. Or a sister. I mean, it's not like the process of becoming a nun or a sister is any different. Yeah, you don't just show up at a convent, knock on the door and say, hey, I, I, I like these clothes. I like the sound of music. <laughs> I like Let to me sing. In. I like to pray. I like Whoopi Goldberg. No, it takes almost 10 years to become a nun. Uh, women who receive that call when they start contacting different uh, convents and communities and orders about their place in that community, it, it, the process almost reads like sorority rush. And sometimes they use the same language of dating. They'll say, well, I'm dating five convents right now, trying to find the one that's right for me. Um, but, yeah, they'll go around from uh, order to order and say sort of, you know, what do you have to offer me? What kind of work do you do? They'll talk to the sisters, mm-hmm. figure out if that's where they belong. And then once they find the place that they want to take their vows with, uh, they begin a process uh, with the formation director, with the discernment director of uh, getting ready to enter the community. And once you start that pre-candidate process, you are called an aspirant. And while you're an aspirant, you have to be deemed fit in mind and body by psychologists and doctors. You're not just a crazy person off the street. You have to complete essays about their call and um, your relationship with God. And then once you've gone through the first phase, you become a postulant or an official candidate. And still, you're not taking any vows, but you might start living with other sisters and participating in activities. And this lasts for a couple of years until the next stage, which is the novitiate. And at this point, you are considered a novice member who will live as a sister while studying different subjects outlined by canon law and by uh, the different orders. And at this point, you're going to give any salary that you might be earning to the community. And you kind of start choosing to live that life mm-hmm. of poverty and really becoming part of the uh, the nun community. And then finally, you take your sets of vows. You have a first set of vows, which are renewed on a year-by-year basis. And then the final be- vows, which are considered binding forever. But you get 10 years to sort of go through this process before you take these binding forever vows. And it makes sense because if you're going to take a vow forever, mm-hmm. bound with God, becoming a bride of Christ, I mean, you really want to know that you're for real about it. Yeah, they give you plenty of time to learn about the church. Um, drop out if you want to drop out. <laughs> and there, I mean, there are certain things set out by the Vatican that you must study and learn about. And I think that the, I think it's really interesting knowing that it takes 10 years for a woman to pledge herself as a nun, to become the bride of Christ, to get the ring at those final vows, they'll mm-hmm. hand out the woman a ring and say, here's your wedding ring with Christ. Knowing that these women go through 10 years of uh, pursuing this profession, I think it's even more interesting that right now nuns are under investigation from the Vatican in this country, the United States. They are under investigation. And it's not the contemplative nuns. We've talked about the ones who are... Of, we think of as locked away in the convents, although they're not locked away. Uh, but the active sisters who are out in the community who are doing things like advocating for the health care reform bill. Mm-hmm. We had 60,000 sisters sign on to a letter of support um, for the health care bill. And, uh, yeah, the Vatican is basically investigating all of these different orders and especially the leadership conference of women religious who have really agitated for women's ordination in the church. Right. And you've got to remember, obviously, that the Catholic Church is not having an easy time of it right now. There's a sexual abuse crisis. People are saying, do we still need a pope? And uh, some people are saying if we had more women in leadership positions, 
maybe these crises, these crises wouldn't get so bad. And basically, nuns are allowed to do everything priests can do except perform mass. But because some people are saying that, that's why uh, many scholars believe these U.S. nuns are being investigated. They're being investigated, some believe, for being just too liberal. And uh, one scholar compared the current investigation to sending a science professor to every single college in the country and asking him to write a report on every single college's, you know, administration, academic life, student life. They're saying this is a task that's impossible for one person to do because orders are so different from one another. Every order might have a different service that they provide. They might have a different, you know, I mean, they are kind of like sororities where they're all different from each other. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the Vatican has said that one sister will visit all of these convents and write a report on the state of the American nun is kind of an outrage to uh, these current women who serve as nuns. And they're saying that uh, they very much fear that something that like Pope Boniface VIII's papal bull could result mm-hmm. where the decisions made that all nuns, again, need to be enclosed. They need to live, you know, quiet lives without all this service element. So it's it's kind of interesting to see it's it's being interpreted as this slap back from from modern life back into the the Middle Ages. Whereas the Vatican is trying to frame it as an examination into the quality of life mm-hmm. of these different orders, and they were referring to um, the checkups as apostolic visitations. And it's led they're led by uh, Mother Mary Claire Millennia, who was described in one article as an apple-cheeked American with a black habit and smiling eyes. And her report is supposed to be completed by mid-2011. So it'll be an interesting thing to watch. It'll be interesting. You know, someone were saying, yes, it's just a visitation. Obviously, you want someone to check up on your quality of life. But this kind of investigation is usually only ordered when something's gone horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Like these are the kind of investigations that are going on about the sexual abuse crisis. So the fact that the nuns are getting one, too, is striking a lot of people as pretty fishy. Because really, um, I, I don't like the idea of nuns being prevented from doing the good work in the communities that they are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times now while we were talking about the younger women who are flocking to convents today, but since it is a 10 year process, a lot of times the women who um, will choose to become sisters are also older women who have kind of led their lives and really feel this call. They might be widowed. They might be divorced. They might have gone through some difficult circumstances and they say, Hey, I really want to do good with the rest of my life. And, and you can have kids and become a nun. Mm-hmm. As long as your kids aren't dependent on you, um, those women can become ordained as nuns. So it's, it's really affecting a wide range of women, but you know, Again, people are wondering if because these women are so broad in their interests, in their backgrounds, in their desires, or maybe their lack of desire for the priesthood, that um, this investigation has come come down on. So we'll, right. we'll watch what happens and we, see what see what happens to these nuns. Yeah, and with in light of the investigation, we thought it would be important to tell the full story of nuns because I learned a lot, Molly, with this research. I don't know about you. Oh, yeah. I love drawing this article. Because a lot of times nuns are, you know, kind of like the librarians we talked about, incredibly stereotyped. Mm-hmm. And we think of them as these, you know, women who are just off and separate from the world, not really doing too much. But, but they are, there is an active, active life. There's for- some sharp gals. Okay. So it's pretty cool. And do you want to talk about one other thing, one really kind of cool contribution that nuns are making to our society? They might help us understand 
because of Alzheimer's. That's true. And that is um, from something called the Nun Study, which has been happening at the University of Minnesota. And it's been written up a few times. You may have seen it in Time Magazine or the New York Times. But basically, this uh, this order of nuns in Minnesota uh, w- was approached by a researcher who wanted to study their brains and try and figure out, you know, what what causes forms of dementia, uh, what happens as the brain ages. And these nuns make a really good study group because they've all lived similar lives. Mm-hmm. They're eating sort of the same food. They don't smoke. Um, you know, they've they're a really good like sample size of of uniformity. Mm-hmm. And um, he can tell based on writings that these women made when they were going through their candidacy process what they were like when they were young. So what's going to happen is when the nuns die, they donate their brain to this researcher and he can compare, you know, the the spots that might have appeared on the brain that indicate dementia or Alzheimer's with their younger writings and try and make connections about how we can prevent Alzheimer's and other forms of aging. And they've already started making some connections, such as uh, women who were of higher intelligence and had more brain activity tended to have lower rates of Alzheimer's. Women who exhibited more positive emotion in those essays um, also tended to have lower rates of Alzheimer's. So, again, some interesting things to watch for in the future that nuns are contributing to our society. And it's pretty significant just because so few studies are done with women. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he knew he could go to this community and get sort of the ideal sample size, I think is pretty, pretty cool. So with that, we tip our habit to nuns. And, you know, we've never heard from a, a listener who's a nun. No. I don't believe. I don't think um, so either. But, you know, nuns are very hip to the social media and the social networking. One of the one of the references, I'll just plug this, that helped me when I was writing this article, is a blog called A Nun's Life. Uh-huh. So um, if we've got any nun listeners out there, we'd love Ooh. to know. Yes, email us nuns, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. And why don't we read an email from another listener? All right, I have an email here from Lisa, and it's about the superhero podcast. She writes, I think that the way women are portrayed in comics is giving off messages to girls reading them that they are victims and that they can't be as powerful as men. After listening to your podcast on this, I looked up the women in refrigerators list and was shocked to see how many women were on it, even ones that I thought were strong and held their own against men. My favorite female superhero has to be Sue Storm from the Fantastic Four, because even though she suffers miscarriages, I still think she is one of the strongest members of the team. She also has brains, and that is why she is my favorite. Well, thank you for that email, and thank you to everyone who has written us at our email address, momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also join us over at Twitter, at momstuffpodcast. You can head over to our Facebook and leave a comment. Say hello. And finally, you can read our blog, It's Stuff Mom Never Told You, at howstuffworks.com. More on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?